Well, it's great to be with you here this morning. Um, I didn't make it in in time to hear what Jeremy said about me, so don't believe anything he said. Uh, we're just going to start, start right off that way. Uh, but my name is Tony Weedle. Uh, my wife Erin was up here singing, and my daughter Isabella is in the back doing slides. And our family's called Countryside, our, our church family home for the last 15 years um, or so. And I think it's been about a year or so since I was last up front sharing with you. Uh, Last week, Pastor Jeremy, he took us on a road trip of sorts as we examined our own personal life journey. Through all of the ups and downs, Jesus is there for us, loving us, forgiving us, and wanting relationship with us. So in somewhat keeping with that theme this morning, I want to take a road trip of our own all the way back to the beginning, or at least near the beginning. Today, we're going to take a break uh, from our sermon series in Philippians. This past week, I was giving Pastor John a hard time um, because, you know, I was saying, man, those verses in Philippians, man, they're familiar. They're kind of easy. And he's like, yep, I'm going to keep those for me. I'm preaching those next week. So um, I didn't, uh, I just wanted to give him a hard time. But they're they're familiar passages for us, right? Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And when I hear the Apostle Paul describing God as peaceful, uh, describing God as protective, uh, describing a God that is near to us, that feels really good to me. But when Sometimes when I'm reading or thinking of God in the Old Testament, I begin to think of a different God. I think of an angry God. I think of a God of wrath. I think of a God whose only uh, desire is to be feared, not in a good way, but in a bad way. Maybe some of you here this morning can relate to that. And you'd be in good company because I've been there with you, and there's also many theologians out there that would agree that the only way we can view God is to view him as, as wrathful and angry. And, and it's for good reason, isn't it? We're going to spend time in Exodus this morning, but even if we just look at Genesis, right? God destroyed the world in a flood. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And in Exodus, we've got all these plagues, and they're not, they're not friendly plagues. They're plagues of darkness and locusts and gnats and hail and disease and even human death. And yet this picture of God does not correlate to what we know about God incarnate. That is Jesus So this morning, I want to discover anew, who is this God that the Apostle Paul is saying we are to rejoice with and have abundant joy with? Who is this God that is always near to us? Who is this God that offers peace and promises to guard our hearts and our minds? Who is this God? Well, I suppose this morning there's nothing new under the sun because this is a question that thousands of people have asked before, and it's a question that Moses even asked of God up on Mount Sinai. Our text this morning comes from Exodus 34. Now, why do I bring up this text? Because this is the first time that God self-reveals his character to us, his glory to us. And when things happen for the first time, we pay special attention to those things because they're important to us, like our first child or the, the first steps that a baby might take, or our first car or our first job or our first failed test. Okay, maybe that's just me. There's a bunch of A students out here, so I was the only one that failed a test, right? Or, or our first family vacation, right? Remembering is important. God is telling us here for the first time who he is. 
Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, God's kind of already told us who he is, and he has. Right through the creation story, we get a sense of God's all-powerful nature. And then as God interacts with the, the familiar characters that we, in stories of, of prophets that we read about, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right, we get a sense that God is all-knowing. He's behind the scenes. He's knitting everything together. But this, here in Exodus, is the first time that God spells out his glory for us. And it's in a direct response to a question from Moses. So before we get into the text, I want to set the stage a little bit, do a little groundwork for us, because I want to remember that the Israelites, they've been set free from slavery in Egypt. God has liberated them from the oppression of the Egyptian pharaoh. The Israelites, they witnessed miracles after miracles, from from all the plagues to the parting of the Red Sea to manna or bread coming down from heaven. Even water was coming out of a rock in the desert. And now they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, where God meets with Moses. It's there where God gave the Ten Commandments. This pattern of Moses going up and meeting with God at the top of Mount Sinai would happen over and over again as God would provide Moses with a message, and then Moses would come down and deliver that message to the people. So Moses is up meeting with God, and and according to our text in chapter 32, Moses was taking too long to come back. The Israelites wondered what had happened to him. As such, the Israelites, they got impatient, and they made for themselves an idol. They gathered gold, and they formed it into the shape of a calf, and they made this golden calf, and it was this idol that they began to worship. And I'm thinking, really? Really? How could the people be so impatient after all that they've seen, after being delivered from slavery, after seeing the miracles? Really, this is how you're going to respond to God? And then I think about where we've been in the midst of this pandemic or this endemic, and I'm reminded of how impatient we are, right? How quick we are to place idols before God, how quick we are to worry about our rights being infringed upon, or how quick we are to forget the goodness and the mercy of God. And we've only been doing this thing for two years. The Israelites were in the desert for 40 years. It's in these times of waiting, often I think we forget to remember the goodness of our Creator. So back to our story this morning, God had a few decisions to make about these Israelites. Is he going to stick with them? Is he going to forgive them? Or is he going to annihilate them and destroy them? In verse 11 of chapter 32, we read that Moses pleaded with God not to abandon and not to destroy the Israelites. It's clear from the text as we continue to read on that God wants to be in partnership with humankind. God wants to be in partnership with those people whom he's made in his image. So God asked Moses to get a couple of stone tablets, and before he summarizes the commandments for a second time, God reveals his character to Moses for the first time. God is responding directly to Moses' plea in verse 18 of chapter 33, when Moses asked God to show me your glory. Show me your glory, God. In spoken word, this is what God had to tell him, and we are not in Philippians. All right, here we go. Exodus 34, verses 4 through 7. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, 
and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unvisited. Rather, he visits the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. So if someone were to come up to you on the street and ask you, who is God? What would you say? Who is God? What would you say? Well, one thing you could say is the text that we just read, right? The Lord is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in both love and faithfulness. He maintains his love to thousands. He forgives and he wants to visit us. He wants relationship with us. That's who God is. So this morning, we're going to unpack these eight attributes together. Um, and I, get, I need to give a shout out to my Old Testament professor, Dr. Bruckner. He through a Zoom lecture that we had, there was a couple of slides, and he spent time breaking down the Hebrew meaning of these words. And it was at that time that I began to gain um, a renewed perspective, a more full perspective of who God is. So let's journey through them together. The first attribute is this, the Lord is compassionate. The Lord is full of compassion. He is merciful. The Hebrew word here literally means God feels our pain. Similarly to the way in which we can feel other people's pain. You know, have you ever watched or, or seen something happen to a family member or friend that actually felt their pain? You know, for guys, if, if you kind of get kicked below the belt, you know, you can feel that pain. If you witness somebody that happened to another guy, you're like, ooh, man, I can feel that pain. Or I can only imagine, again, only imagine for women childbirth, right? You can, as a woman, I imagine that you can feel another woman's pain as she's going through childbirth. Or in my house, my daughter's growing up to be a young woman, and as she journeys through life as a, as a teenage girl, she's, she's running into challenges and things that are happening, and my wife can walk alongside her. My wife can say, yeah, I felt that pain, Isabella. I know what that is like. I love this imagery of God. God knows what we are going through. He can literally feel our pain. In his love for us, he is merciful and compassionate. And we have this similar kind of compassion and love for people around us who are struggling. When we meet with them in discipleship groups or when we meet with them in prayer, we can see and we can feel the pain in their eyes. We can, we can get a sense of all of this through the Holy Spirit that connects us. The first attribute of God this morning is that the Lord is compassionate, the Lord is merciful, the Lord feels our pain. The second attribute, the Lord is gracious. The Hebrew word here literally means to put yourself in someone else's shoes. It's hard to imagine being any more gracious or generous to someone else other than how gracious you are to yourself. And that's exactly what God did for us. God came to the world in the form of a man, in the form of Jesus Christ, and lived among us. God put himself in our shoes. He knows exactly what it is like to be human, to be tempted by sin, to be lonely, to desire relationship with the Father. And of course, unlike the Israelites, for us this morning, we know the rest of the story. God put himself in our shoes by dying on the cross for our sins, by taking upon himself our punishment that we deserve so that we might spend eternity with him. This is the very source of the incarnation. By grace and by grace alone, we are saved by a gracious God who chooses to put himself in our shoes. Have you ever put yourself in somebody else's shoes? When I was first out of college, um, I went to work out in western Kansas in the meatpacking businesses. 
And um, I was a city boy, went to a city college, and I'm out in a packing house. To say I stood out like a sore thumb would be an understatement. All right, but out there as a part of a human resource management training program, I had to go through the plant and I had to learn all of the jobs in the plant. My employer wanted me to put, wanted me to be in the employee's shoes. They wanted me to have a good understanding of what was going on out there. Because as in the hiring process, I needed to know what the work required. So uh, one day I found myself um, on the gutting table, and I'm not going to get into detail, but it's just really strong and heavy work. And so if I'm interviewing somebody and they say, well, Tony, I can only lift 10 pounds or 15 pounds, I'm going to say, hmm, that's not going to be a job for you because I've been in that person's shoes. But there's a job over here, and this job over here requires smaller hands and a more delicate mindset. And because I've been in that job too, I know that you're going to be a good fit there. I knew because I had been in their shoes. How incredibly awesome is it for us to know this morning that God put himself in our shoes. Our God knows what it is like to be human. Our God wants to be gracious with us. And he has wanted to from the very beginning. Attribute number three. The Lord is slow to anger. The King James Version here would call this long-suffering. The Hebrew word, is a, it's a slang word. And it's a slang word that symbolizes a nostril burn or flare. Do you know anyone like this, that they, when they get upset, when they get angry, their nostrils begin to kind of flare out a little bit? It's kind of like taking a deep breath. You know, the person really wants to blow up and get angry, but they're trying their best to keep it inside. I've had the uh, distinct pleasure and opportunity to work for my mother-in-law several times uh, in her business. And as I'm there working and I begin to get frustrated because it's very mind-numbing and tedious tasks, she'll just lean over and say, Tony, you're starting to get angry. I'm like, how does she know I'm starting to get angry? And she'll, she'll tell me, she goes, your lips, they're starting to make this funny shape. And so she knows, right? As humans, we do these little things that we, we think we're controlling our anger, but on the outside, right, we're really not. When Isabella has crossed the line at home, there's one of two things that can happen. My first and immediate response is that I want to yell at her. And if I react immediately, that's exactly what I'm going to do. However, if I take a slow breath, take a minute to process what is happening, taking time to consider not only her but her heart, I know I can have a discussion that isn't based in yelling, but rather a conversation that is based in love. That doesn't mean there are not going to be consequences, right? But I choose to react slowly. And this is exactly what God's first response with us is. It's a deep breath through the nose. It is a calming breath. Even though uh, we might, his nostrils might be flaring, God still loves us. In uh, Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10, uh, God is responding to the golden calf moment, the idol, and he's talking to Moses, and, he's, and the Lord says, I have seen the people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. Through the ongoing conversation with Moses in the text that follows, the anger of the Lord subsides. It's a delayed anger that is set aside. Even though he might be angry, he is still drawing us into his presence. The Lord's anger is slow. Attribute number four, the Lord is abounding in love. The Hebrew word here is hesed, hesed. 
Now, if you're going to say a word in the midst of a pandemic like hesed, you might need to have a mask on because you almost have to spit when you say it, right? But, but this word hesed is used for love. It's the Lord's abounding love for us. It is unrelenting. It is also an active love in that it pursues us. We don't have time today to discuss all the ways in which this hesed love is used in Scripture to, to describe the fullness of God's love for us. But I want to give you a few examples this morning because I want you to see the fullness for yourselves. It's a kind of love that God uses when he rescues us. When Joseph needed rescued in Genesis 39, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his steadfast love, his hesed love. This, this love, this hesed love is the basis for hope in times of trouble. In Psalm 94, the psalmist says, When I thought my foot is slipping, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Isaiah talks about this hesed love as the basis for the messianic promise when he says in chapter 16, Then a throne shall be established in steadfast love in the tent of David, and on it shall sit in faithfulness a ruler who seeks justice and is swift to do what is right. In Psalm 136, we read 26 times that this hesed love, this steadfast love of God endures forever. And Jake this morning, uh, as a part of the worship, he read Psalm 25, and it talks about in the midst of our forgiveness, it is God's hesed love for us, his steadfast love for us that allows us to stand forgiven. The professor I mentioned earlier, he gave class this concluding definition of hesed. I love the fullness. I love the power of this definition. Hear it. Hesed is God's steadfast love, a redeeming and righteousness and justice-based love. It is a covenant loyal love, forgiving in mercy and grace, a tough, enduring, unrelenting love, eternal love that is revealed in the Old Testament and is fully revealed in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a full definition of who God is? Another cool anecdote is that when you read the original Hebrew, an important literary style is to look uh, for the structure. And when you find different structures, you look for what's in the middle. And what's in the middle here this morning in God's self-revelation for us is love. Love is found in the center. What an amazing message for, for us this morning that right smack in the middle of God's self-revelation for us is his hesed love for us. Number five, the Lord is abounding in faithfulness. The Hebrew word here means completely reliable and trustworthy. What God says is true. Through thick and thin, good times and bad, God will be there for us. He is trustworthy. Now, I hate to compare God to a dog, but I'm going to use this illustration, so just hang with me for a minute. Cooper is our family dog. He's a little Karen Terrier. Think Toto on the Wizard of Oz. Cooper is completely trustworthy and reliable. Every time when I come home, Cooper is there. He meets me by the back door. His ears are back, his tail is wagging, and he starts kind of yelping in a high-pitched bark. Right? He's there without fail. He is completely reliable and trustworthy. Or if I grab his paw, he begins gnawing on my hand because he hates his paws to be touched. Every time he does the exact same thing, he'll just slowly put his teeth on my hand trying to get my hand free. The point is, Cooper is completely reliable. He is completely trustworthy. And that is exactly 
what we find in the perfect character of God. God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good. God never acts out of character. And for me, there's so much assurance in knowing that I worship a creator who is the same yesterday and today, through thick and thin. God Almighty, the Lord, is abounding in faithfulness for each one of us this morning. He is predictable, he is trustworthy, and he is reliable. Number six, attribute number six, God tells us that he maintains his love to the thousands. Here we find that God is guarding and protecting us forever. As we've just learned from the previous two attributes, his love and faithfulness are abounding. Literally what we're seeing here is that the Lord is maintaining his love to the thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. We see this phrase even used in the Ten Commandments when God says that you should not make another idol for yourselves. Does that sound familiar, Israelites? Huh? He's talking to them here. God is the initiator, and we are the responders. Out of our response and, our, and out of our obedience, the God of the universe maintains his love for us. All right, we are at a transition point. We've got a couple more attributes to go. But it's important to take a breath here and recognize the transition that God makes as he continues to reveal his character to us. No longer is he talking about his loving and merciful and gracious character, all those attributes that we've been talking about. But now he pivots because he is going to begin dealing with human sin. What is it specifically within God's character that allows him to deal with sin? What is God's response? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that he's a ruthless judge. He doesn't say he wants to destroy anyone who sins. He doesn't say he's wrathful. The good news for us this morning is that God is a forgiving God who wants to visit us right where we are at. Attribute number seven, the Lord is forgiving. For the first time in scripture, we find the word forgiveness. Forgiveness can simply be described as lifting a burden and carrying it away. So how does God deal with our wickedness, with our rebellion, and with our sin? Very simply, he forgives. He forgives. Now I wonder if you're surprised like me to find the word forgiveness so early on in the Old Testament. Isn't it amazing that here, in the midst of the Israelite sin, God is forgiving them. Even though they began to worship another God, God Almighty still forgives them. I love this. From the very beginning, God is forgiving. I want each one of us to hold onto this promise and this truth this morning that each and every one of us in here stands forgiven. So what are the kinds of sin that God forgives? Are there certain ones he forgives and, and others that he doesn't? Let's look at them. There's three kinds. First, God is going to forgive wickedness. Guilt wickedness deals with two components, right? The first is the general guilt that we feel associated with sin. I feel guilty or sorry for what I have done. And then second, it deals with the consequences of that sin. Because even though a sin is forgiven, it doesn't necessarily mean there are not going to be consequences, if, if I'm playing uh, in a baseball game and I take a bat and I swing it at my opponent and I break my opponent's nose, right, there's going to be consequences to that. A couple consequences for my opponent. A broken nose, maybe trouble breathing long term, and there's going to be consequences for me. I bet I get thrown out of the game. I might be suspended from future games, maybe even kicked off the team, right? Even though 
my, my teammates forgive me, even though this person, the opponent that I hit in the nose might forgive me, there's still consequences. Guilt wickedness typically covers those things that we do to other people. These are going to be violations of the second half of the Ten Commandments. Things like you shall not steal or commit adultery. You shall not kill or bear false witness against your neighbor or covet your neighbor's possessions. These are examples of guilt wickedness. Then God says that he is, is going to forgive rebellion. For his part, rebellion typically is understood as a betrayal and violation of an agreement between two parties. Rebellion would typically be the first half of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You should keep the Sabbath holy, and you should honor your father and mother. All but the last one would have you betraying your relationship with God, a direct sin against God. And yet, even in this rebellion, even in this kind of personal sin against God, God stands here this morning and says, I forgive you. God wants to lift that burden and carry it away. And then just to make sure he covered it all, he didn't want to leave any sin uncovered, God says he forgives sin. It's a catch-all. It's a catch-all category for anything that does damage to our relationship with God. This type of sin could be accidental or unintentional, but nevertheless, it's a sin. And God's desire is to forgive those sins as well so that we can have restored relationship with him. I wonder if you've ever offered forgiveness to somebody almost immediately for an egregious act maybe they, they did against you. Uh, in my case, it's been a lot of years back, I had an employee steal from me, steal some money. It wasn't a lot of money, but nevertheless, it was some money. And as I confronted that employee, the employee began to confess what had happened, uh, took accountability, said, yes, in fact, I did it. Um, and it was in that moment that the employee asked if I could forgive them. The employee wanted me to offer forgiveness, to know that, that this person wasn't an awful person, right? And they, they were just pleading out for relationship. And in that moment, I offered forgiveness. Now, like we've already talked about, that doesn't mean that the consequences go away, because there are definitely consequences for that action. But in that moment, there was a chance to have restored relationship, and that's what we see with God. God loves us, God cares deeply for us, and God forgives us. Our hope is found in a forgiving God. He takes our burden and He lifts it away. And that leads us to our final attribute this morning God visits us. God visits us. The Lord visits us. For their part, the translators of the NIV, so the pew Bibles that are uh, in front of you and uh, what I've been speaking from, often I think what Pastor John uh, teaches from, they got this, this part of the scripture wrong and we need to award some points to the translators of the King James Version. Now it's a pet peeve of mine when pastors are up front here using five or six different versions of the Bible in order to get the, the English words to fit their desired narrative. However, it's important to look at the original Hebrew uh, to make sure that we are translating the passage correctly. Here, the Hebrew word is best defined as visiting, not punishing. As such, it dramatically changes the understanding we have in reading the passage. So I'm going to read it twice, first with punish, and then next with visit. Halfway through verse 7, it says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Rather, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. I don't think that's right. 
The King James Version, even the English Standard Version says it this way. They say, yet he does not leave the guilty unvisited. Rather, he visits the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Notice here that God is not removing consequences. He's not removing the consequences of sin. And at the same time, God is not adding anything to the sin. God is remembering us in our sin by visiting us. This means that God isn't adding punishment, like I've said, but that the natural consequences of the ongoing impact of guilt, wickedness, of rebellion, and of sin will remain as a negative impact on the community and the family of God. It's here where we first begin to understand the devastating impact of generational sin. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news for us this morning is that God remembers us even in our sin. God visits us. No different than when we visit or remember our kids when we have punished them. Right? They're facing consequences. We send them to their room. But we don't leave them there for seven days and not talk to them. No. We still love and we care for them. We provide for them. We visit with them. And like I said, even though there's consequences, we still love them. And that's the imagery that we find here at the end of God's self-revelation. Even though the Israelites have formed an idol and are worshiping another God, it is from the backdrop of this situation where we hear that our God, our Heavenly Father, is not only forgiving, He is not only loving, but He also remembers us and visits us, even in our sin. So why in the world am I going on and on about these attributes? Here's the truth for us this morning. If you don't know who God is, then you won't recognize the imposter. If you don't know who God is, then you won't recognize the imposter when the imposter shows up and tries to steal you away. I was at an event not too long ago, and I I spent the better part of a week in spiritual darkness. I believed a lie. Not getting into all the details this morning, but but what you should know is that I forgot who I was in Christ. I believed a lie. I ran from God, and I isolated myself. Through that process, I wasn't listening to God telling me that he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and rich in love. I wasn't listening to God tell me that he forgives me and he loves me and he wants to be with me. Understanding the very nature of God is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. We have to remember who he is so we can remember who we are as well. As Christians, our new identity is found in Christ. The Apostle Paul is telling us in Ephesians and in Philippians over and over again that we are one in Christ. The old is gone and the new is come in Christ and God our Father. We have a new identity. We have a new identity. Uh, identity that is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and rich in love. The entirety of God's love story for us, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are woven together so that we can see the fullness of our Creator. They are not two different books describing two different gods. Rather, it is a singular and very intentional love story that over and over again features God revealing His true identity to us, One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, with equal power, majesty, and character. As we conclude this morning, maybe some of you are like me. 
Maybe this past week, this past month, or even this morning, you're being fooled. Maybe you're being tricked by an imposter. I want to take a minute, maybe two or three minutes this morning, and I invite you to close your eyes, and I want you to hear again one last time these promises of God. Remembering what God has told us, what God has told you, what God told Moses and the Israelites all those years ago about who he is, about his glory. Hear these words. The Lord is compassionate with you. The Lord feels your pain. The Lord is gracious with you. For he put himself in your shoes. No matter what you have done, hear this, my child, the Lord is slow to be angry with you. And God the Father is telling us this morning that know that he is abounding in love and faithfulness for you. The Lord is maintaining his love to the thousands and the Lord forgives you. You are forgiven. He forgives your wickedness. He forgives your rebellion. And he forgives your sin. The Lord does not leave you alone. No. But rather, the Lord visits you, and he cares for you both now and forevermore, all the way into eternity. Oh, the lavish love that the Father has for you. Oh, the lavish love that the Father has for you. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for yourself revelation. God, thank you for revealing your glory to us. It's an important reminder for each and every one of us no longer how long we've been following you, God. We need to know who we are, who our identity is, and our identity, God, it is found in you. And God, there might be somebody here for the first time hearing who you are. God, we celebrate with them. There's no magic formula. I've read through your scriptures. God, but I just pray that they would reach out to Pastor John or Jeremy, Pastor Lynn, myself. God, we want to celebrate. There is nothing better in this world than worshiping a God who loves us, who is compassionate, who is gracious, who cares for us, who is slow to anger. Thank you, God, for forgiving us right where we are at. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.